So you said your definition of priesthood. Can you define, define, that's not a word, define. Welcome to Pursuing Call, a place where we explore what God is up to in our lives so that we can participate in God's mission for the world. Find out more at pursuingcall.com. Let's get started. Now you can you hear me? Now I can hear Katie Mears. <sighs> Success. Anchor FM, you are not the easiest way to make a podcast. <laughs> yeah, then I could only be on, um, I could make a podcast by myself and I could invite you to my podcast, but I couldn't join your podcast. Oh, that was so weird. But now, now it's all good. Now it's all good. Everyone's here. Okay, I'm going to go to this. How's it going, Katie? It's fine. Technology is fun. <laughs> <laughs> You recently, I just I had this moment where I realized I am my mother's age. Like <laughs> we are solidly middle aged. You mean? So, yeah, like solidly at the point in my life where, like, I know enough. I had enough access to technology that I know some stuff, but I clearly don't use it often enough to be a master of the the tools that are um, whatever that exists these days, so, yeah. Hello, I'm your host, Tamara Plummer, and welcome to this week's episode of Pursuing Call. I'm very lucky to get an hour on a Friday afternoon during the week of Mercury and retrograde or whatever the thing was that week. While it is often easy to record an episode on Anchor, for some reason, the technology was not complying So you'll hear a bit of a chop in my conversation this week with Katie Mears. Um, It was honestly probably not Anchor's fault, but we were getting a bit frustrated. Um, Usually the best part of Anchor is that you get to use the phone app. And so you can just kind of talk like you're back in high school, having a regular conversation on a phone in your house with your friend. Um, But that was a little bit more difficult this week. So I apologize for that. Also, I went on vacation slash worked not from my apartment in Brooklyn, which was very fun, but then got a stomach bug. All this to say, I'm clearly late on episode. It's no one's fault. Mostly it's just my fault. And I did not get it out in time, but hopefully it'll come out. Sunday, October 31st, which is All Hallows' Eve. So that's a thing. But this week, we're going to talk a little bit about the concept of priesthood. But really, what we're talking about is how do we lead people through acts of life in ritualistic ways that feels good and honors uh, folks. There's a There's a lot to talk about this week. Um, It's probably one of our nerdier episodes. Katie and I do nerd out on church things. If you're not a church person, I think the best way to think about this is to think about how do we honor and how do we celebrate folks in institutional spaces when their leadership does not look like what we have decided leadership looks like. So what are ways that we, you might see leadership showing up and giftedness showing up in your institutions 
in ways that look different than the way that you normally think about how leadership shows up in institutions? Hopefully that question is clear. All right, let's get started with the interview. See you on the back end. Katie Mears, one minute introduction, go. Um, Katie Mears, I'm on this call because I think, because I work with Tamara Plummer. Um, I am a pretty darn, I'm a pandemic ordained priest um, and I'm the senior director of U.S. Disaster Preparedness and Response and Episcopal Relief and Development. Um, and I've been doing church stuff professionally, basically my whole adult life. I worked for the Diocese of Louisiana after Katrina and then moved to Episcopal Relief and Development in 2009. And you, it's now 2021, which means that you have been working in disaster relief for 20 years at this point, I think. Fifth, yeah, 16, 17. 16, 17 years. So what, can you just tell the story of how you got there and maybe what your faith has to do with it? Yeah. Um, I was, I grew up Episcopalian um, in the sort of high on practice, low on articulated belief end of the Episcopal spectrum. Um, and so, you know, went to, you know, accolated and like did everything, um, prayed before dinner. Um, but it wasn't like, there's no like real faith part particularly. Um, and didn't get involved in like the youth ministry or that kind of stuff. Cause it seemed way too um, intense and evangelical for mm-hmm. me. Um, and sort of kept, but kept going, um, through college. And then after college, I was a political organizer for a couple of years. Um, but it was a rough year, um, for my party. And so, uh, something like 20,000 organizers all became unemployed on the same day. And I wasn't really sure what I was going to do with myself after the 04 election. Mm -hmm. Um, and ended up, long story sort of wilderness period um taking care of my cousins in the dc area and part of uh, caretaking for them was taking them to church Um, and we went to saint columba's for the evening service um and there was a mission trip that was going to be leaving that was a dc area parishes going to new orleans and i want to say there was some like high-minded purpose of why I wanted to go (laughs) but the actual truth was that it was leaving the day after Christmas um, and I worried that I would go home to my parents house and then like never leave Mm. and this was like a reason that I'd put on the calendar that I like had to leave and couldn't end up like working my high school job Mm -hmm. and living in my twin bed for the rest of my life so I went to New Orleans and then um, found work that was like physically demanding and um unlike election work, how it felt to me at the time um, was that like you worked really hard and like, no matter what happened, someone felt better at the end of the day than when you started. Mm -hmm. Um, And then got hired by the diocese and did that for a couple of years. Did a volunteer job. Yeah. I mean, it's a story that you can tell just like why you showed up because you were volunteering and then you stayed. got hired. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Can I ask a practical question you don't have to answer? Yeah. How do you sustain yourself at this time? Like, how do you eat and house and 
like today or no, in, 2005? When you, in 2005 when you were <laughs> okay when you're yeah. like I don't want to live in my parents house I'm just gonna go volunteer because not everybody has the option of just volunteering so like were there other things that you had to do to sustain yourself um I'm privileged enough that I didn't have my parents to care of my student loans mm-hmm. um and I don't know what happened I don't know if I even knew about health insurance or paid any attention um because I was at that age and but I knew I could stay for free at St. Andrew's Episcopal church. Mm-hmm. Um, and at least for the very beginning, the parishes in DC that came down on that trip were so glad that someone was pa- staying behind that they sort of passed the hat oh, that's <laughs> to, cool. do, to pay like my food money. Oh, that's um, awesome. And like new Orleans was in such a crisis that if you wanted a free dinner every day, you could get one. You could find some place to that people were distributing food or yeah. Yeah. So it was like a pretty low cost. And then, but I got hired by Mardi Gras by the end of February. So it wasn't even that long. Yeah. That's Um, not that long to just kind of make it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Make it work. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, So then uh, I'm going to fast forward and then we'll go back. So fast forward to today, you are an ordained minister. Can you tell the story of, uh, how the hell we got there? Well, the thing is, then you can't fast forward. Um, so I think this is probably, I don't think this is a unique experience, but I definitely had the experience in New Orleans that I was sort of a smart young whippersnapper, mm-hmm. um, meeting Episcopal volunteers, um, week in and week out. And I had the experience that everybody told me I should be ordained mm-hmm. and had a well, grooved response of basically like lay leadership matters and like just because I can talk to volunteers and lead a group that's not an ordained ministry and like you should validate my lay work mm-hmm. and I like believed that um wholeheartedly um uh, but and it was a reflexive contrarian answer like both of those are true mm-hmm. um and and I kept working for the church and I kept leading in church spaces. Um, and, and I kept saying, I'm a lay leader, like I'm leading and I'm a lay person and that's fine. Um, and then, but the longer I spent in the church and the longer I spent interacting and being sort of, I guess, out in some ways about my church work with my non-church friends, the more I was getting asked to do things that you get trained to do in seminary. So I was being Mm -hmm. asked to lead weddings. I was being asked to plan funerals. I was being asked to, you know, talk through complicated uh, mental health situations. Um, But particularly around like leading life rights. Mm -hmm. Um, And I felt both like, this is absolutely what I want to be doing. Like I do want to, help secular friends mark sacred moments and like when they're afraid um about a health thing i want to pray with them in ways that like make sense to their language while being true to my language Mm -hmm. like all of that was happening and i realized that in our tradition like i if i wanted to be trained to do that that's 
on the path toward ordination to the priesthood. Like we call leaders who are trained to provide pastoral care and like celebrate life markers and be the focal point in their communities. We call those priests, like whether, whatever complicated feelings I have about that. Can you say more about complicated feelings? <laughs> um, without being offensive to all the wonderful priests I know. Yeah, I can't, I, I think that, when I think of priesthood as a incredibly like binary set apart from the world, like understanding of vocation and ordained life, I don't see myself in that. Like, I don't think that I was like, I'm a different person. I don't think I'm set apart from other people. I don't think this is like the only kind of call that is worth talking about. Um, and I, you know, don't have priest voice. I hope <laughs> like it just like the sort of ways that, um, set apartness mm -hmm. um, and differentness and like always differentness um, can be seen as a mark of priesthood. Um, I feel set apart and different in lots of other ways, but priesthood isn't it. And so as long as I can sort of like put all those cultural markers down um, and sort of settle into my understanding of what priesthood is, it totally fits. Um, I don't necessarily feel like I like, and I've only been ordained in the pandemic. <laughs> like I got ordained right. to the diaconate in December of 2019 so it's not like I've even like so I was about to say like I don't think I would like feel necessarily like I'd fit in at the priest table mm -hmm. but I also like literally have never been anywhere where there is a priest table <laughs> they haven't been rooms where I've gone yeah you haven't necessarily done the like the the priest gatherings the monthly whatever is all that stuff that the polity parts of priesthood yeah the collegiality part there's been a pandemic for the whole time Mm -hmm. okay if you could rewrite the canons mm -hmm. and you were defining priesthood what would that look like i think at this point and again like it's a it's a tired friday um i have a very community like local church center right now mm -hmm. and so i do think that I, whatever my definition would be i hope there's a lot of room for individual congregational expression for whatever we define priesthood as. But to me, priesthood is about the person in the community who has been particularly trained and like, and lifted up to lead a congregation um, through the marks of what the life in that congregation is. And so th that's, not just physical plant it's not just sacramental it's not just theological but it includes all of those things um but it's the where i'm not a you know, independent church person is I, I do think the training and formation are critical and i recognize in this world we have to specialize like we can't all like dabble in medicine and like dabble in dentistry and, you know, dabble in funeral preparation. Like it's important that people are trained for the work that they're doing. Um, I'm just not sure it like changes their constitution, especially retroactively. Mm -hmm. Like, the, so you're pointing to the kind of sacramental ideas that sometimes people place on ordination process where like the spirit inhabits the body and gives you magic hands. And always has. 
like I think the place that honestly probably kept me from ordained ministry for a long time was this idea that like you were marked forever as like this is what you're supposed to do Mm -hmm. and like you're evading it or not and as long as we would talk about dentists that way I'm like open to it Mm -hmm. Um, but this idea that it's like a special thing that is like different than other kinds of jobs Mm -hmm. um, I think is a real problematic and again like maybe there's some truth to it um, but I think in the way that we make it special, we end up demeaning everybody else mm-hmm. um, and everybody else's vocation. Yeah, it's, so, I think so even I the way we the talk about of it, maybe it's the levels of validation of it. Versus, yeah, because I do no, because I'm thinking about um, the way that you're talking about it, that that my aunt is obsessed with clergy royalty, right? Like this concept of clergy royalty, that there are people in the church that believe that they are specialer than other people Mm -hmm. because they are ordained or they are related to an ordained person. And therefore they hold the power and they can make decisions and they can like, they can navigate spaces because clearly they are special because they're ordained. And that, and that, that diminishes the power and the, the knowledge and the experiences of people who are not. Um, Especially, Cut off mid rant. (laughs) That was gonna be a good rant. (laughs) It was was a good good rant. Clergy royalty. (laughs) Set apart. Were we talking about something being set apart? Yeah, I Um, think that like the problem is, I guess where I started was like, if what's especially hard for me about that question is that what you said was like they're set apart because they're ordained not they're set apart because they're trained (laughs) as if there's like something in the actual right. And again, like I do believe in the like magic and I believe in the power and like all that stuff. Sure. But whatever like setting apartness Mm -hmm. like is, is not for me in my understanding is not because the person had the hands placed on their forehead and they like jumped through all the hoops and like took all the vows and like are super like behaving well, Mm -hmm. like whatever authority they should have should come from the training and the skills and gifts they have in the same way that everybody else's authority should be rooted in the training that they have and the skills and the gifts they have not like whether that has been officially blessed by the institution. Right. So, can we talk a little bit about training? I didn't, I didn't have this idea, but and now I just want to talk about the training part. It's, uh, we both went to seminary, which is the same seminary. Um, it's true. Uh, Union Theological Seminary Union in New York City. Theolo- Yay, Union! <laughs> um, so one of the things that I found fascinating, like I kind of went to seminary because I got the no from the priesthood and I thought, let me investigate further. And also, why do I not like priests? were the questions that we're writing. Me in particular, right? No, like, not just you, like the <laughs> whole, it's kind of like how sometimes white people get on my nerves as a group, totally. right? Yeah. You know, as a group, that clergy royalty thing, I'm not as obsessed with it as my aunt is, but it's I do have, it's a thing, right? Where people would tell me that I couldn't do something or overlooked my capacity to do a thing, like, I don't know, plan an event, but somehow I was equipped to run Sunday school which doesn't make any sense. <laughs> and so like people would overlook my capacity to be a leader in the church unless I had a collar. Mm-hmm. Um, even though I had more training and skills in leading conversations and in facilitation or whatever. 
than the person that was, that was the priest, right? Like mm-hmm. I would run a better Bible study than the priest, not because I knew about the Bible, but because I knew how to run a meeting. Mm-hmm. So I don't know why I went on that tangent. Clearly I have feelings about it. Um, but all that to say, it is incredible to me that in the first Bible classes, often a joke would be, here's the reality of how the Bible was formed, or here's the like secret sauce of the Bible, but don't tell your congregation that because they might lose their faith. And so that was like always a thing that bothered me mm-hmm. that somehow they're the setup. It almost feels like they tell people like secret sauce information in seminary so that it makes you more set apart in ways that are, are not in the, in the aspect of training, but in ways that don't empower you to like develop your community into more deeper relationship. Like, I don't know if, if that makes sense at all. But there's a way in which telling people in the, in the seminary space about the truth, these like historical con- context and deeper knowledge and in the training is a way of setting people apart, not in a good way. Like, you know, like you have the knowledge, but like, don't share it which seems very counter to Jesus movement, many kind of things, but I don't know if I'm making any sense. To no, totally. I mean, I think that one of the challenges is that like, who has access to what kind of information and how, and then like how fast has anyone been able to like transmit that back to congregations? Like, I don't think I got the vibe quite as strongly as you did that this was like information we weren't supposed to share mm-hmm. as much as it was information that would like be deeply upsetting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so sort of like tread lightly. Um, yeah. And I mean, I think that's true, honestly. And to me, one of the things that's been really interesting in the pandemic is I know a couple of sort of older adults who've been able to access online seminary courses and have had their minds like blown mm-hmm. um, as, you know, like 70 year long faithful Christians, but who've been going to Episcopal churches, but who like hadn't learned that information. And because of the pandemic and online classes have been able to just like, tell me about how we actually think the old Testament was put together. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think to me, just sort of a tangent, but I think it's still true interesting and true is just that our leadership has been afraid to tell people (laughs) what they believe and the truth because there's this idea that like people can't handle it yeah um and so that's the part that i feel like part of why we train priests or train anybody right like even the dentist i don't necessarily need to know what's in a filling and stuff but like it would be good to know okay i'll do this pt for example, the first time I took physical therapy and somebody described my skeletal structure to me, I was like, why didn't I learn this in elementary school? Right. Because I would be able to move through the world in a healthier way and wouldn't need PT. <laughs> I might need it to adjust. I need coaching probably like because I'm not going to do it right all the time, but it would totally change how I move my body. But I think the thing that I keep thinking about and has been like such a thought, you know, I will talk about is the pandemic is the, the ratio, especially for us as Episcopalians, or at least my experience in the Episcopal church of the ratio of like liturgy to everything else in terms of mm-hmm. what life means as an active Christian. Mm-hmm. And I feel like, even though I wouldn't have like said it consciously, 
there is a way that I thought that liturgical participation was like 80 or 90% of Christian life. Mm. <laughs> and that mm. like, like, let's do that. And like, let's, and if we wanted, like, and if like Sunday's not enough, cause you're like super into it, let's like add more services on more days. Mm. But it's still like more corporate worship. Yeah. That corporate worship is the way. That's like the one thing. Right. Um, and the idea, and it feels like we have sort of a, and I don't, again, I didn't even know it in myself until I thought about it, like a sniffiness around individual study that mm-hmm. like individual study is like somehow like <laughs> evangelical or conservative or mm-hmm. trite, or I don't know what I thought, but like the, the idea that sort of learning about scripture like it's just again like outside of a liturgical framework um like just it wasn't in my framework um mm. especially individually like maybe you'd go to an adult forum but like the adult forum might be about like appreciating state parks right <laughs> you know like, right. who knows yeah. the adult um, forum could be everything from the the well I did go I will say the one thing that I appreciated about the cathedral is it had a bunch of UVM professors University of Vermont professors and I lived in Vermont and they would always do like at least once a year the adult form would be like Paul who is he (laughs) and it'd be like the religion professor like breaking down but I think you could still go to those your whole life and not really know the truth of it yeah Yeah. even in these places because I also have gone pretty much to academic churches my whole mm-hmm. life like but like it still didn't a like read the bible outside right. the lectionary like in a row to like mm-hmm. actually like again the fact that i had to get to seminary to understand that moses was the star of the hebrew bible <laughs> i just like i i like was just like again from the sort of eucharistic prayer i thought of moses as like part of a list mm-hmm. like there's a bunch of prophets one's named moses <laughs> Like, there's also one named David. Like, I just like mm-hmm. this, uh, the idea that, like, you would summarize, because you can't summarize if you only read the text in a lectionary form. Right. Um, and again, I don't know where I got it, but I had this idea that, like, reading it in lectionary form was, like, the best way. So, like, mm-hmm. there were even points in my life where I was, like, trying to be, like, really good. But, like, what that meant was reading the daily lectionary which meant i still didn't get the narrative Mm -hmm. because it was too choppy yeah um and so it wasn't until seminary when like we read the whole thing Mm -hmm. that i started to get the narrative framework so do you think that your seminary training and your kind of uh, forced you out of the liturgical framework or do you think pandemic did that I think I was already out. <laughs> I was yeah. already on my way out. Yeah. Um, but all of the above, I think that, it, and, I mean, you know, from work, like I, this, there's an idea that we talk a lot about at Episcopalian Development about polarity mapping and like that there's two extremes. And I feel like I had hung out so firmly in team pre-written liturgy and had such sniffiness and utter discomfort with spontaneous prayer mm-hmm. um, and spontaneous anything in worship, <laughs> mm-hmm. like that sort of all had to be pre-written that for, for me, it was very 
it just it happened to but it started before I went to Union. Like I got involved in a congregation that was from deeply not Episcopal congregation, not from that tradition, like where there's like a framework, but that like people say the words that make sense to them. Mm-hmm. And they met some Episcopal priests that that's their jam, like that mm-hmm. they sort of like they know the Eucharistic prayer, but like they might change some of the prepositions mm-hmm. and it sounds more vernacular. And at first I was like so uncomfortable with it because like I know every word and like when I'm feeling nervous in the middle of the night like I can say the whole right to liturgy and like it's comforting mm-hmm. um but this idea that like you could just bless the bread <laughs> like mm-hmm. in your words um mm-hmm. I really needed to swing toward the vernacular um, not because any articulated part of my brain actually believed that God didn't like the way that my thoughts were formed in my head, mm-hmm. but I had ended up there accidentally. Like that, the way that I go into a meeting and I like say a prayer to myself going into the meeting, the way I think it is fine. I don't need to like lean on Cranmer. <laughs> like, right. this, the, 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 again, it's not written to be judgmental. And like of our own thoughts, but I think we can go there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, I've grew up in Episcopal churches too, but I don't know. I just never. Also, don't like rules. So, but you also went to camp. I feel like the camp. Thing, I went to camp. I, I was talking to camp. another Episcopal camp person <laughs> this week, and I feel like there's just a way that like camp. It broke open faith. Episcopal in camp way. gives people space. Like that is an experience mm-hmm. of, I think, I assume liturgical expression that's not just like page 366 yeah I and I thank you for saying that because I was trying to figure out like where did I get this I remember sitting in the liturgy class with with Claudio Carvias and he's talking about everything is liturgy and blah and I was like wait do people believe something else I was very confused in this class and um and he was talking about you know connecting what we do at the table to everything we do outside but I do think it traces back to camp life like yeah, everything and I definitely don't like to me. There's this, to me, there's just this idea. It's just so rooted. It feels rooted in our tradition that if it's like not in a book somewhere, it's not a thing. Mm. So that like, um, you know, in order to like, there's a house blessing. So there's like a page number. And if we mm. wanted to like have a service around um, folks changing their names, that there has to be like a thing in a prayer book to like make it a thing Mm -hmm. (laughs) versus like we could make a thing. And like, yeah, we should distribute it so that other people don't have to write everything themselves. Right. But like, are there pieces from here and pieces from here that we can put together in a new way that. Yeah. And that like doesn't decrease the like normative power of what is written. And like, Mm -hmm. I think that it's important that we like fix some of what's written, but like we also, yeah, I can just wing it. And I feel like that was, you know, again, I grew up, we said the same grace every night and my parent, my grandparents said the same grace. And like, I'm sure it's from a like old version of a prayer book. Like mm-hmm. we don't make up how we would bless this food to our use and us to your service. Like that's just the one way we do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We only prayed on Sunday. So when the priest came to dinner. Yeah. So we got to change it up. But often I would be the one to be, that's why I came up with my from the belly to the ground, no, from the ground to the belly back to the ground, may it all be blessed. That was my interpretation of buen provecho. It's good. (laughs) Uh, 
Mm, you were talking about Loji. Oh, so as you've swung further from kind of this very bookish liturgical space, how does that change or does it change how you understood your vocation? Um, yeah. As a priest, less than a, a disaster response person, probably. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the interesting... So part of, like, all your questions that are about, like, call and vocation, there is a way that, like, those questions in an Episcopal space, like, the unit (laughs) of call, and again, I know you don't actually think this, is, like, if we say call, we mean priesthood or diaconate. Mm -hmm. Like, that that is the only call to which we would discuss. Which is why this podcast is called Pursuing Call, because all of them. God is calling us to all kinds of things. Exactly. Dentistry. Like, thank God for dentists. Mm -hmm. Um. I so how has that that swing the swing from the because or was that possibly a I'm thinking maybe that's also a motivating factor for you to even say yes I will be ordained that this that there seems to be a relationship be more creativity like I think Mm -hmm. yeah if I understood that priesthood had to mean finding something in a prayer book and finding a currently identified Episcopalian that would want me to say it to them. Mm-hmm. There's really no reason for me to be doing this game. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like that I'm not called to that. Like, I feel like there was like a moment in chaplaincy. I had to do my CPE unit. And I realized that like the rooms of people who self-identified as Christian and wanted a Christian chaplain, mm-hmm. they didn't mean me. Mm-hmm. And like, that was and so then I had all kinds of complicated feelings. And then I was like, like, but that's not, I, that's fine. Like, I don't need to feel bad that like when a Mormon wants a chaplain and I walk in the room, we're all uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Like what I need to be doing is just finding the ways that like the people that I actually am called to serve with know how to call me. Mm-hmm. And I think what's hard is as long eh, again is where we get get into like prayer book reform like as long as the language of the prayer book is fundamentally relatively off-putting especially Mm -hmm. in terms of I mean I mean I don't like I struggle all the lightness and darkness imagery as well as all the patriarchal stuff like if if the primary if we think of priesthood as being able to say certain words in the prayer book and the words in the prayer book are rough for a lot of people that aren't already used to them um, that's a tougher thing for me to feel like I'm called to do. But if there's more creativity and what I mean is that a priest in our tradition is a person called to lead a community through sacred moments, like then I'm in um, mm-hmm. and I'm going to change some of the words. Mm-hmm. As you should, because at the beginning of every part of the prayer book, there's a rubric for all rituals. And it says, do whatever you want in this order. Kind of. Kind of fun. That's my favorite part of the book. It kind of says that, though. That's how I read the That's instructions. That's how you read it. That's, <laughs> That's how I read the instructions is say whatever you want in this order. As long as you do another service where you say it this way. <laughs> I don't know about that part. I don't know what that part is. Um, I stick in the family and individual section and the catechism. Those yeah. are my favorite parts of the book. <laughs> How this is kind of related, but part of the training for you is um, 
disaster work, like your actual job that you get paid yeah. to do that's not ordained, did not require ordination to have. How has that influenced your your understanding of call? That wasn't the question I wanted to ask, but that's the one that I'm remembering now, and then I will, it'll come back because you said something about CP. It's tricky. I mean, I think that there's like, I think you were talking earlier about sort of the ways that that sort of like where ordained people place power and a sense that ordained people place power in themselves and in other ordained people Mm -hmm. and like all of the challenges they're in. And there is a way that I don't think it's fair, but when I'm doing my disaster work with other ordained people, I do think it's certainly helpful that I think there's a way that I'm trusted in a different way because it's understood that I have certain training mm-hmm. um, and that I have a certain people ordained people seem more willing to like, let me hold a space um, again, which I don't think is like, because I was formed in a certain way in my mother's womb. Um, I think it's totally human. Um, but that like, I'm, I'm, I'm trusted in a different way. Um, and in ways that are helpful, especially for people who need permission to be able to put some burden down. I don't know if that's fully oh, answering your question. Asking, well, I was kind of at thinking about it um, from, uh, is this stuff that you've already done training for the, the kind of vocation and the way that you defined, you define priesthood for yourself? How might those things be correlated or related? What I said before, before the pandemic was that there is a way for better or worse. We talk about leadership in our tradition um, is tangled up with ordained leadership and ordained Mm -hmm. ministry. And I think the ability to create sacred liturgical markers in the communities that we gather um, as we prepare and respond to disasters, like that's, sacred work that in our tradition I think is ordained work so the ability to like gather people around a table have people offer their gifts and their struggles um, and be able to bless that Um, you know for the past 10 years I've I mean with you we've like Mm -hmm. created the spaces and then let somebody else actually do the magic Mm -hmm. Um, and I think it's going to be great when we get to do it to not have to hand that over and to be able to actually hold the space mm-hmm. um, and to be able to like be the whole container mm-hmm. and not just like part of it again, mm-hmm. not like, which again, sounds like grandiose and weird. So I don't mean, but I mean to be able to like give some, but give the participants a fully safe space where they can be present, not like for all of them, except for the one person that we're going to make lead. Right. Yeah, no, I, th- I do think it, it, the one parts of our ordination, the only, I had said to somebody recently, like the only reason I would want to get ordained at this point is one, yes, to like lead the liturgical part when I'm doing grounding, community building, but also I think liturgy is everywhere. So I am always leading the liturgical part. And then the, the other one is to um, marry my friends. Well, I mean, it feels like you've done the Which... other answer to the same question that I had, mm-hmm. again, like not to put all myself onto your story but that like the sort of idea that what you need to be is trained 
to do the things that the community is asking you to do. Mm-hmm. Like you can be trained and still do it. Like I'm, I got trained and got ordained to do it. You also went the route of just getting trained. Yeah. <laughs> like same outcome in a lot of ways. I think I kind of just decided that the definition of what ordained people are is not what actually I'm being called to do. Especially, again, I think that what's so interesting about this moment is that, yeah, I'm sure there is, like, one canonical answer, Mm -hmm. but, like, everybody, I mean, again, watch why you're doing this podcast, but, like, what everybody's answer is is so different. Yeah. Um, That we have folks that have a really Anglo-Catholic understanding about priesthood and separateness, and then, you know, folks that are basically congregationalists um, Mm -hmm. and everybody in between. Mm Mm-hmm. Because I really do love a good liturgy with a good vestment. Well, and I don't think and... they match onto liturgical styles. Yeah. Like, I think you can be a, like, real into, like, your vestments and um, your incense and have a relatively low theology of priesthood. Mm-hmm. And I think you can be really into low church stuff but still think of priests as like a separate and distinct class mm-hmm. like i don't think it, i think there's probably like it's a bit of a like i think there's probably more people who have anglo-catholic worship style that have set apart understandings of the, of the priesthood but it's certainly not one-to-one mm-hmm. so what's interesting for me about you is there i've recently interviewed two different people who now are episcopalians but they grew up like you know, blood of Jesus Christians and non-denominational folks. Um, and they so wanted the liturgical piece that they swung into the Episcopal Church because it still had some of the progressive polit- political leanings and the, that were not present in their, their super evangelical spaces. Well, the only um, other thing that I'm talking about right now is have you listened to the Mars Hill podcast? No. Oh, I'm I'm like mildly obsessed with it. Um, it's like a series by Christianity Today about the downfall of this sort of toxic masculinity hyperchurch in Seattle. Mm. Um, but What's it's it like called again something about rise and fall of Mars Hill. That's what it's called. Rise and fall of Mars Hill. Yeah. Um, but what's fascinating about it is it's like very easy for me to be sitting on my like. Episcopalian throne being all like judgy about um, cult of personality megachurch. Mm-hmm. Um, but a, but to me, there's actually a ton in there about like why it works. So yeah. like to me, what it made me realize is that I, I think the Episcopal <laughs> church in the way that it's not surprising to me that you're talking to people who grew up in that tradition, because in the same way that, I'm saying like, I didn't understand that like I had any personal agency and I thought that like a good Christian life was just like saying more corporate things out Mm -hmm. of the BCP. Mm -hmm. If you come from that rooted world, you need a dose of like individual commitment Mm -hmm. to following the Christian life and like individual ownership of like studying the Bible and like, there's like that stuff all makes sense. But if that's all you've had, of yeah. course you want liturgics and you want community and you want um, you want some more salvation prayers. talk and like a little <laughs> bit less damnation talk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, more script. Mm-hmm. Where for me, it's like, 
I, I don't think that I said a prayer that I wrote myself into my mid twenties. Oh. Like it just didn't occur to me. Like it just like literally didn't occur to me. You really did not go to camp or do any youth events. No. <laughs> and even from what I heard about them, like the happening kids, they would be drafting the service. Yeah. The whole Like they service. were writing it. Yeah, yeah. They still weren't making anything up. No, no, no. But even, but some parts were made up. Like you might even do like a, this is the order of how we do the Eucharist. Like what is the prayer that you would write for this or um, yeah, no. write they a prayer as a, Write a prayers of the people. That was a really great. I, I have no idea where to find it. So if anyone listens to this podcast at all, apparently at least fifty of y'all do. There's um, fifty times it's been listened to. I've been I'm very excited about it. Mm-hmm. Um, is there was this prayers of the people that these kids wrote that was like, um, I pray for the monsters that are underneath my bed. That's the children who are afraid of the monsters underneath their beds at night and we pray for the children who have no beds totally and i guess i think for me it's like again like that's where i thought creativity ended okay is like well written but pre-written and then i think i was like at union and a part of this community where like this community that i'm a part of now for the like prayers the people people say their prayers yeah like in the moment Mm -hmm. and so you know like that person's brother just died in Rwanda and he can't go and he is very sad mm-hmm. and like that person's daughter is having surgery and like yeah live mm-hmm. and like to an evangelical this is nothing interesting right <laughs> this is called praying but to me I got to know this community better in three weeks of mm-hmm. praying and they got to know me better mm-hmm. than communities I've been part of for years yeah where we just, even if we, even if we were doing creative expressions and like downloading some avant-garde prayers of the people, mm-hmm. they were still somebody else's prayers. Mm. Yeah, um, it wasn't, it wasn't that personal relationship with God kind of thing. Or a personal relationship with each other. Mm. It was scripted. Yeah. I and mean, I think that's the part that I just keep thinking about is the ways that like, when we make everything be scripted, what is the takeaway? I, I guess from the takeaway for me was that there is something wrong with my live thoughts. Mm. Like, why do we have to script it? Like, because there's like, errant, like that sort of, and again, like nobody said it, but you like, you know, I remember with my youth group, we like went to a synagogue and there's always the, like, when you're reading the Torah scroll, like somebody is like following closely to make sure that you don't mess up. Mm-hmm. Right. And maybe I'm butchering this tradition, but I yeah. think I'm pretty sure that's true. Um, and I feel like it was sort of that way with the way that we treat the BCP mm-hmm. and that like everybody knew that there's like a one part of the Eucharistic prayer where in right one, there's a comma and right two, there isn't mm-hmm. holy, holy, holy comma, Lord, God of hosts. And then mm-hmm. in other ones, it's holy, holy, holy Lord. Mm-hmm. And like everybody in my church growing up, like knew when the priest screwed that up and like took great, <laughs> ha ha, the comma was wrong. Like, because like, as if, and again, like, what are we doing perfectionists like and like how but how are we coding perfectionism which like again like codes on white supremacy and all kinds of other stuff like however the anglicans in the caribbean also have coded that they will literally if you mess up the reading they will say it out loud totally no that my my wasps did that (laughs) or it would at least 
kind of gasp mm-hmm. like a little like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um so I, I it's not just creativity it's spontaneity and it's like fun. Okay. why I don't want to have my family like take away a notion that God doesn't like your spontaneous thoughts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so if for some folks, if you're coming from an evangelical Pentecostal charismatic tradition where like, that's so obvious, then mm-hmm. like welcome. But I feel like for those of us who've been in the Episcopal church our whole lives, like how can we make space for recognizing that our words are also okay. Mm-hmm. Hmm. The spontaneity. What is a spontaneous? Maybe this is the challenge. I try to give homework. The next time you pray in public space, you do not read anything. That would be my homework. For this yeah. Time. And if that's like way far outside of your comfort zone, like what sitting with why, why? Mm-hmm. like, because I think the ways that we are a deeply performative tradition is, and I think the internet and the pandemic and live streaming has only made it worse. Mm. Like it's, it's a performance and it's not a performance. Yeah. And so the, the sort of, I remember talking about this with my liturgics professor, like in the ways that I think it's actually, for me, it feels very welcoming when clergy aren't perfect and are slouching and are like sticking their hands in their pockets or like fiddling Mm -hmm. with their keys because it implies that they're not some sort of like special robot person Mm -hmm. and that like we're all people gathered around a table yeah um and when clergy try to set themselves apart as like weird perfect people with like perfect posture Mm. again it like it heightens for me this notion of separateness and perfection that I don't think serves anybody. Mm-hmm. So uh, you get to, let's say you get to do, I don't know if you've done this yet, your first in-person post-pandemic gathering. What would be your ideal worship experience to lead for the first time? Mm, I mean, for my ordination, we did... Um, uh, picnic Eucharist mm-hmm. where everybody brought what they brought and put it on the table. So again, I love the idea that about mm-hmm. part of the offering was that people brought their bread and mm-hmm. like again, and it was all different stuff. Like people mm-hmm. had different bread food product. Mm-hmm. And so, are you still there? Yeah, yeah. You just cut out for a second, but you were back. I heard all okay. that bread pot products. Um, everybody had bread products. And so again, to me, that like that phrase that like through many we are one, like mm-hmm. doesn't have to. It was a way for visually for me to see that like that doesn't have to mean homogenous. Like, um, you mean actually it says though we are many, we are one body. Yeah, get the, yeah, <laughs> correct. That one. That's my joke for the day. That's, That's good. Um, but, but I feel like it's often, like, that we're not ripped from the same piece of pita. Mm-hmm. Like, somebody can be a rice cracker. Somebody can be a whole wheat bread. Somebody can be a peanut butter cookie. Like, it doesn't. Mm-hmm. 
yeah, it doesn't matter. Someone can be rough, gluten-free biscuit. Yeah, who cares? Mm-hmm. Um, so, I guess to me, it's like, what is my perf- like? What's my perfect gathering? Like, it's such a tricky question because it's like, again, for me, it's been so long. Like, this community mm-hmm. space doesn't really line up with gathering. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, so it's, it's in the round, it's seeing each other's faces, it's sharing bread in a way that's acknowledging difference. And it's like, so it's a familiar pattern with different words, um, mm-hmm. based on the particulars mm-hmm. that's that, are, that are particular to the community that you're in. Yeah. So then my last question in, in seminary, we always talk about community of accountability how do mm-hmm. you define that and has your ordination changed or enhanced or added or taken away? I don't know. Also, we've been in a pandemic, so I don't know. To your community of accountability, how do you define that community and then how's your ordination impacted that? I think that a community of accountability has been some of the core volunteers with the program. Mm-hmm. Um, and so not gathering shifts that a wave of retirements shifts that. Um, And then my huge challenge is this community I keep talking about in Portland. I mean, it's not Episcopal. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And at this point, it's not any denomination. They've left their denomination. Mm -hmm. And so I struggle a ton with the rules that we have um, around who we as ordained people are supposed to serve. Mm -hmm. Um, And an idea that like, I can't give communion to these sort of disaffiliated, most like (laughs) queer folks Mm -hmm. um, because they're not received by our bishop. Like it's just the whole, all the rules I really struggle with um, at this time Mm -hmm. Um, because how can our polity serve to expand who we are when like our polity technically doesn't even have open table Mm. like the people i'm called to serve don't fit in our polity (laughs) so when priests because there are some priests that just give people communion they just say i've been to a couple of churches where i think the first time totally i've only been i've only been a part of those churches come to this table those like if you feel called to come come on over yeah are they totally i mean but those are in Episcopal churches it is Got one it. step farther to be at a non-Episcopal event and then be like, here's some communion. I'm going to like come to your speech. Like, I think technically according to our canons and again, like how much do I care? It depends on what day of the week it is. Mm-hmm. But like, um, the, you're supposed to get a Bishop's permission before you preside over Eucharist. Mm. if it's not your community mm. and I'm not assigned to these people I can't be assigned to these people they're not a part of our tradition mm-hmm. and like again like to me some of these my hope and prayer coming out of the pandemic is that some of the ways that we think about denominations will shift mm-hmm. um, and like fiefdom and territorialism because it's not serving anybody yeah that is that is thank you for presenting my entire thesis <laughs> That was that was what I what I concluded from what I heard people who were struggling with the ordination process 
um, to say. Like they got through. There's, I, I don't think you're alone in the in the group of people who got through the process. But then you get on the other side and you question, um, wh- what was I ordained to do? Because I feel called to this thing, but the rules are telling me this other thing. Right. Calling and rules are not the same thing all the time. I think is what I'm hearing from your story. Yeah. Okay, so what had happened was Katie moved in her house, which disrupted the uh, connection on her phone, which meant that our conversation kind of just ended there. And then we just called each other on the phone and talked. So that part is not recorded. But I think this question that we end with which is actually a part of the work that I did in my research called Ordaining the Disinherited. Uh, well, women of color priests have to tell us about the the, ordinate, the discernment process. You can find that at columbia.edu if you search the Columbia Commons, little plug. Also, if you go to my website, pursuingcall.com, I have a blog about public priesthood and this concept of what does it look like to be a priest or to be an ordained person that leads community through ritual in these public spaces. Um, There's also some interesting work being done in the Lutheran community. You can follow Nadia Boltz Weber and her work that looks at, and her new position rather in the Lutheran church where they have started to think about this question of public priesthood. So in this episode, we talked a lot about what does leadership look like and how do we honor it? We talked about this concept of worship and prayer and Katie's um, growth into more spontaneous, more what I would call liberative spaces of prayer. And the last thing that I wanted to just discuss on this back end after you've listened to the episode there's there's a thing that Katie said toward the end about white supremacy and its impact on how we engage in prayer spaces and liturgical spaces and and literally in how we define who leadership is that we didn't fully get to dive into because we've already come to a very long episode. But I think that's an important note to make. Many of what Katie says as a lifelong Episcopalian resonates with me. This reliance on the Book of Common Prayer, also known as the BCP. This idea that if things aren't written down, then they aren't official. And I think it's super important for us to recognize that that is rooted in a white, Anglo, colonizing way of interpreting what is real and known. So a couple of weeks ago when we talked to Jerusalem Greer, a similar notion came up about this documentation, this kind of, um, um, this codifying is, is really rooted in kind of a white Western way of knowing. And what I realized that where my story does diverge from Katie is that I grew up in Black Episcopal churches. 
And so even though it was Episcopal and had a lot of that Anglican, high Anglican uh, energy, particularly because it was Black West Indian community churches, that where our stories differ is that that African knowledge, point back to the episode we had with um, my good friend Yubi, and that African traditional way of knowing that that connection to the ancestors, the spontaneity, the, the living out of the spirit still inhabited the cultural context of my religious life. I just wanted to have a moment where we recognize and honor that our cultural context and that coupled with our religious and denominational experience often impacts how we see and understand spirituality. And then the struggle that the church is going through right now is how do we then, we're trying to figure out how to institutionalize that, that, that which is culturally complicated. Or is there another way forward for us as we come out of this pandemic moment? Katie and I did not particularly talk about the pandemic. We are disaster response people, so we have been doing a lot of pandemic work. And so I don't know that that was going to be the best use of our time to reflect on the pandemic because we are still raw. But um, yeah, there's, there is a question that's rising up for me that is different than the one that I asked at the beginning of this episode, which is how does your culture impact how you understand whatever religious um, group you are a part of or, or spiritual group you are a part of. Because for some religious people, their culture and their spirituality are not separate things. We could hear that in how Miyubi spoke about her story in last week's episode on Africa, last last two weeks episode on African tradition, African traditional religion. And for other people, they can, we might think that our culture is not connected to our religious practice, but as we can hear in Katie's story, is so much of kind of like white, Midwest, middle-class academic culture was a part of her religious understandings and her ways of knowing about what is more than this. And now she is grappling with and thinking through whether or not that is an authentic expression of her true belief systems. And so I don't know what to do with that. I feel like this is this is a whole nother episode that we'll have to have at a different time. But I want you all to think about how your cultural practices, and or rather how your culture, your ethnicity, your ancestral background is tied into how you understand what is greater than this, um, how you understand what is more, how you understand God how you understand the church, how you understand your religious practice. And I would love to hear from y'all. I haven't got any emails about it, but I would love to get one. So yeah. Thank you so much for joining us for this week's episode of Pursuing Call. 
I can't wait to hear about how you are exploring God's voice so that you can participate in God's mission and dream for our world. Send your email and comments to Tamara at PursuingCall.com. That's T-A-M-A-R-A at P-U-R-S-U-I-N-G-C-A-L-L dot com. You can also visit PursuingCall.com to learn more about what I'm exploring and envisioning and thinking about. Thank you so much and have a wonderful and beautiful day. Go in peace to love and serve.